0: Join me in Romans chapter 3, Romans 3. Again, this morning we will be looking at verses 21 through 26, and you can find our text on page 941 in the Blue ESV Bible if you would like to follow along there. The title of our sermon this morning is Righteousness in Christ, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are Christ, blood, and former. Well, just a few years ago, a sociological study was done amongst seminary students in evangelical seminaries across the United States. And the findings of that study showed that 35% of evangelical seminary students, these are the people training to go into churches as pastors or onto the mission field as missionaries, 35% of them deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary for one's salvation. Barna Research revealed that the same percentage, 35% of self-professing evangelicals in America, affirmed the statement that, quote, God will save all good people when they die, regardless of whether or not they've trusted in Christ. Now, whether a person professes to be a Christian or not Eighty-five percent of American adults believe that one day they will stand before God to be judged. They also affirm a belief in hell, and yet only 11 percent have a notion that they might ever go there. R.C. Sproul observes that to the degree that people think they are good enough to pass divine inspection and are oblivious to the holiness of God, to that extent they will not see Christ as necessary. This is why over one-fourth of professing born-again evangelical surveyed agreed with the statement that one would think might raise flags even for those who might agree with the same thing more subtly put. If a person is good or does enough good things for others during life, they will earn a place in heaven. Furthermore, when asked if they agree with this following statement, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. Two-thirds of self-proclaimed evangelicals didn't find that objectionable at all. George Barna observes how little difference there is between the responses of those who regularly attend church services and those who are unchurched. One respondent said, what is important in their case is that they have conformed to the law of God as they know it in their hearts. It is, as Niebauer famously said, of liberalism in the 19th and 20th centuries, they proclaim and worship a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the menstruations of a Christ without a cross." Now, this is undoubtedly one of the things that is most despised about Christianity for those who are not believers, the exclusive claim that only those who truly have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can and will know the blessing of everlasting life with Christ forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. The world will look at the exclusive claims of Christ and recoil But when we undertake what and who we really are based on what Paul has shown us thus far in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, showing us our, our great longing after the creature rather than the Creator, giving up God that we might worship that which God has made, giving ourselves over to idols and the desires of the flesh. He showed us in chapter 2 our, our longing for our own self-righteousness, our desire to prove our worth by our works, and showing us that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie that we might in ourselves justify ourselves. And when we we think about that, when we understand that, we understand very clearly why it is that the wrath of God is coming and will be poured out on all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men because we understand that God is a holy God, that God is a righteous God. And naturally, our, our flesh takes offense to this, not because Jesus bore the wrath of God, no, but because God has wrath against us in the first place. What have I ever done that God could actually be angry with me? What have I ever done that could ever offend Him? Surely, I am not as bad as everyone else. And the truth is, we all know from what Paul has shown us that since we haven't done all that we have done in our lives with a zeal for His glory our entire lives have been an offense against God. Now, this is our third look at this particular passage of Scripture. And remember, we said that this is the passage that Martin Luther called the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones concurred with Luther and commented, it is no exaggeration to say of this section that it is one of the greatest and most important sections in the whole of Scripture. Now, we looked previously at how this section really outlines the five solas of the Reformation for us. And so far, we've seen that what Paul is showing us is that salvation, first and foremost, is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Despite what all of our friends and neighbors might think or say, there is no salvation in Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is it. There is no alternative. But we also saw that in light of who we are, as Paul has so passionately laid out for us, we saw that we could only have that faith in Christ by grace alone. It was not by anything that we have done in any way that anyone has salvation, but it is only by God's grace that Jesus took our place, that we need not work and toil as though we could earn something or repay God or prove our worth. We are all unworthy and the only way we have faith in Christ is by grace. That God has graciously, lovingly, and mercifully granted to us as a free gift to awaken us to the important reality of our need for new life in Jesus Christ. And so we come empty-handed before God. We rely entirely upon His promise that He will be gracious to us in Christ. And so today we're going to consider what Paul writes about the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, What He has accomplished that by grace we might have faith in Him and trust that what He has accomplished is sufficient for us, that our faith in Christ will see us to the end. So what does this passage tell us about who Christ is and what He has done? There are three distinct words that show up in the text, and we'll look at each of those this morning. So let's read first and see Three different aspects of Christ's obedience on behalf of the church. Let's read beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, remember how we talked about how this passage is a great transition point for Paul in his writing of this letter. Having laid out his argument against man, he now shifts his focus and begins with those glorious words where he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He's showing the stark difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's revealing the clear distinction between the law and the gospel. And so today we we consider the newness of the new covenant and the beauty and the glory of the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ shed on our behalf We think about three major things, three major words that should be in our thinking, and three major places that put those words into context for us so we can remember what it is that Christ has accomplished for us. And so we will think about how propitiation brings us to the temple, how redemption brings us to the slave auction, and how justification brings us to to the courtroom. So we begin with propitiation in the temple. And we see that in Christ we have propitiation for our sins. Now what happens in the temple? Well, of course, sacrifices are made. Blood is spilt. The sins of the people are being atoned for as they place their hands upon the animal. One would place their hands and in so doing would signify the transfer of the guilty status of the man and his family to the animal. And that animal would be slaughtered according to God's instructions so that the blood could be a propitiatory placeholder that would roll the sins of the people forward another year, another year, another year, until it all finally lands upon Christ on the cross. And so the blood of bulls and goats and rams, it was all just a placeholder. None of it was sufficient, it was just a signifier for what was to come. Because it was never powerful enough. It was never good enough. And that's why it had to happen over and over and over again. Year after year after year. Countless animals were slaughtered for the sins of God's people. Innumerable gallons of blood were spilt and sprinkled to signify our great need for atonement. And it would continue until Christ presented Himself as a sacrifice, as a propitiation. Now you remember from last time I used that helpful phrase provided by our good brother Russ Jenkins. He taught me so many years ago that propitiation is the sacrifice that satisfies. It means very literally to turn away wrath, to appease or satisfy anger. And and so God set forth the Son to pay the debt to satisfy His demands. God's wrath is His anger against injustice, against sin, against evil, and He demands that He is appeased. The whole reason Jesus had to die was to demonstrate justice, to do justice, to deal with justice. God cannot just forgive our sins. He cannot just let things go. Justice has to be done or he is unjust. God's wrath is his opposition to that which is wrong and evil and sinful. And listen, this isn't isn't an opposition to God's love and goodness. No, this is because of of God's love and goodness. It is the goodness and love of God that makes him angry at injustice. And it is goodness and love that should make us angry at injustice. The reason that God is so angry at the sin and evil that's destroying humanity that He made and that He loves, destroying the world that He made and that He loves, the reason He's so angry is because He's so filled with love and goodness. If He wasn't filled with love and goodness, He wouldn't care. The opposite of love is indifference. He just wouldn't care that we were destroying ourselves and creation. But He does care. And He cares so much that He has a true, justified, holy wrath against all of our sin. And that wrath must be satisfied. There must be a propitiation if you are to escape being the one that satisfies God's wrath in yourself. So how does it happen? By what means is God's wrath propitiated? By the blood of Jesus Christ that pays the debt for injustice. The blood of Jesus Christ that is pure and undefiled. It is the greater blood than that of the animals. It is the once and forever spilt blood for our atonement. And, And think about how this works for us. Think about when someone wrongs you deeply. There are two things that you can do, and both of them entail suffering. If someone really wrongs you or really harms you in this life, if they rob you of something, if they rob you of anything, happiness, your reputation, your your money, something, if they have wronged you, the, the one thing you can do, maybe one option, is you can find a way to hurt them. Now, that may feel good in the moment. It may feel satisfying to find a way to hurt them back and to try to take away their happiness or their money or possessions or whatever it is. If they've hurt you and maybe you hurt them a little bit more, then the debt in your mind will eventually be paid off and they won't owe you anymore because you made them suffer. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that when someone wrongs you and the way you pay them back is to make them suffer, the only winner is evil. Your heart is hardened, right? You no longer trust others. You have a bit of cruelty in your heart that you didn't recognize before, and that makes it all the easier to do that thing again. And of course, while that person may suffer your wrath, they never learn anything about the truth, They'll never be able to see what it is that they actually did because they'll be so wrapped up in trying to stop you from causing their pain and suffering. Evil wins in the end in that scenario. And and so the other option is that we forgive. But forgiveness doesn't come without suffering either. Forgiveness means that we suffer. We bear the loss of forgiveness, right? Let's say, for example, completely hypothetical, you're riding a motorcycle in my neighborhood and you run it into the side of my garage door. Completely accidental. You messed up while you were riding. It left a huge dent in my door. If I just say, hey, no problem, I forgive it all, what does that mean? That means that I suffer loss. Now, Maybe I don't even make you pay for it. That wouldn't happen. But if I didn't, I would suffer the loss of money in addition to loss of other things that are involved. The loss of time to get it fixed, the loss of usefulness of the door for the time. Again, all very hypothetical situation. But listen, this is the only way, this is the only way that we stay soft hearted people. This is the only way that evil doesn't win. I could blow up. I could go and get a hammer and start banging on your motorcycle or start fighting you, but what does that do? I could instead lovingly say, I'm sorry this has happened to you. We'll get it sorted out. I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad nobody's hurt. It's just a door. It can be replaced. Let's figure out what to do Next. So you see the debt, the debt can just cannot just be willed away. It's going to be there. When something happens, someone is suffering in some way. There's no way around it. So if that's the case on the individual, human level, that a debt has to be paid through some kind of suffering, this speaks to the debt that is owed to justice that you cannot just will away before God. Listen, our absolutely just God cannot just allow sins to go free that are destroying humanity, can He? He loves us and has every desire to grant us forgiveness. And so what Christ is doing on the cross to propitiate God's wrath for us eternally is the cosmic version of what we have to do when we forgive sin individually think about that. He is paying the debt to His own justice. He is satisfying His own justice. Now, many people struggle with this idea of a blood sacrifice. And albeit very subtly in many ways, Paul actually addresses this in the text. Do you remember maybe in your reading in high school or college, reading Homer about one of the the Greek generals, Agamemnon. Maybe that name rings a bell. Agamemnon was at at odds with one of the, the goddesses named Artemis, and she would not give them the winds to blow their ships to Troy in the midst of battle, and so they were going to lose the battle. And so to appease Artemis, Agamemnon sacrificed his own daughter. He shed her blood. And when he he did that, Artemis thought, okay, now you have honored me, and so I will give you fair winds. And she blew the winds and blew their ships off to Troy. Now, to hear that, we think, wow, that is so primitive, that is so barbaric. And yet, then we think that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, provided a sacrifice of the only Son to the Father, and we learn something about sacrifice, but we also learn about how different God is from what is derived in the, man, in the minds of men about false gods. You see, it's not that you and I have to present a sacrifice. We don't have to present our firstborn sons or daughters to become sacrifices to appease an angry God, because our angry God presents the sacrifice of His one and only Son to appease His own wrath on our behalf. He provides the sacrifice. He provides the blood instead of shedding yours or your child's. He brings His own Son to the temple to sacrifice on your behalf. You see that in verse 25. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. That was God's doing. So you see, God is not like Artemis at all. And you and I do not have to respond to him like Agamemnon. Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sin. And what is the result of that? The result of that is the second big picture that we see this morning. That in Christ, we have redemption from sin and death. Redemption. Redemption brings us into the slave market. We move from the temple now to the slave market. The idea of redemption is that something is being bought back. To redeem something is to liberate through a purchase. In in ancient times, there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. If you owed creditors more than you could pay them, you lost your freedom. First, you lost your land, of course. You became a a tenant farmer, but ordinarily you lost your freedom. You became a slave to your creditor. You had to work for that person. You had to work for them until you paid them off, and it could be many years until that debt was paid. Often, it was paid on to death, and so freedom was completely lost. Now, Because people often lost their ability to pay, because of circumstances outside themselves, it could have been anything from famine to to drought to flooding to fire. Remember, very agrarian, so mostly crops. The Lord actually made a provision for this in Leviticus 25. The idea was that since the people were going to fall into poverty and they were going to fall into slavery because of indebtedness, there needed to be what they called a kinsman redeemer. There needed to be a redeemer, and they have to have three characteristics. First, they had to be a relative of the same flesh and blood. Secondly, they had to act not not out of compulsion, but out of love. It had to be a free and voluntary exchange. And thirdly, they had to buy the person's liberation by bearing the cost themselves, they had to take on the cost of the debt themselves. But interestingly, here we are in the New Testament now, and Paul is saying that we all need redemption. We all need a kinsman redeemer. The entire human race is in need of redemption. So there's something more high level going on here that is, that is above this idea of a kinsman redeemer redeeming a physical slave. You see, Paul is pointing out that we are all spiritual slaves, and we all need redemption. We need God to come into the slave market and to buy us from our bondage, to buy us from our enslavement to guilt and to shame and to the law. We are enslaved to the idea that we are not measuring up. We are enslaved to the reality that we are inadequate. We are enslaved to our own guilt. We are enslaved... not living up to our own standards. Now, in many ways, we live in a culture that doesn't have a concept of guilt, or at least we like to think so. We intellectually tell ourselves, there is no right or wrong except for what I determine. But we can't shake the fact, even when we try to think that way, that we feel a sense of shame and condemnation. We're not adequate We're nowhere close to being what we ought to be. So the interesting thing about all of us before we realize who we are before God is that we feel like sinners even though we don't want to have this concept or this category for sinners because we've tried to convince ourselves that guilt and shame are not real things. We're enslaved to guilt and shame. It drives us. But that's not all. The other thing we need to be redeemed of is not just the law, as it were, not just guilt and shame and the need to live up to standards. We also need to be redeemed and liberated from what the Bible calls false masters. If you feel the need to prove yourself because we have this sense of being a sinner, we turn to all kinds of things. We turn to our jobs, some of us go into a career, we make money, we're going to have professional success. Some of us go into our relationships, and if this person loves me, I will have a family, and then, and then it will mean something. We turn to our children, I can show others that I'm a better parent, I make better decisions, I'm more attentive to their needs than others would be. But if, if we're looking at all these false masters for our significance and our security and our validation... They're no longer just a job. It's no longer just school or family or children. They become our masters. And here's what a slave master is. A slave master is someone who has no boundaries and someone who beats you up if you fail. They can do whatever they want to do to you, and they do it. When you fail even a little bit, they beat you. How do do you know whether your family, your career, your school is a slave master or just family or career or your children? The answer is you, you are not able to say no to them. You ask their permission to live your life. You see, they're slave masters. They beat you, and you need to be redeemed from that You need to be redeemed from the law. You're enslaved to the law. You're enslaved to guilt and shame, and you need to be redeemed from the false masters that we set up in order to cover our shame and shield us from the sense that we are not what we ought to be. We need redemption from the slavery that we find ourselves in. And Paul tells us in verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is making a cause-effect statement here. Because we have been redeemed, because we have been purchased by His blood away from slavery, His blood was the payment, and we were purchased away from sin and death and the law and guilt and shame. And as a result of that, we now have justification we can be justified. And that's the final scene that Paul brings us to in our text this morning. He shows us that in Christ we have justification as we stand before our Creator and our Judge. We, brothers and sisters, are justified in the courtroom of heaven. And we are justified in the courtroom of heaven by faith in Christ, because we have been redeemed by Christ, by His propitiatory blood. And so the sacrifice was made in the temple, and we were redeemed in the slave market, so now we can stand in the courtroom of heaven before God. And you see how this all holds together. We have, as we enter into the courtroom, an absolute knowledge of our guilt. We have no illusions that we are innocent. We know we are guilty. And yet, and yet, as we enter that courtroom, we see an amazing thing. Notice verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift. We thought about that a few weeks ago. But notice, it's, it is by grace alone that we are justified as a result of redemption in Christ, and He paid the price in His blood. But that's not all. You see, it's not just a change of status. It's not just a legal transaction. Now, this is a change of our hearts entirely, showing us who God is. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we see who God really is. And who is he? Paul writes in verse 26 both just and justifier of those who believe. He does it all. He does it all. You see, he doesn't just cover the debt, he doesn't just grant us pardon, he doesn't just give us justification he changes us. He is our kinsman redeemer, and all that he is and all that he has become is ours for us as Christ has lived his life, as he showed in his life what it is to be perfect in every way, to fulfill the law in every way, to become a sacrifice for us all that he is all that he had become for us so instead of just covering the debt he floods our lives with love and with honor and with true transformation what did it take for Jesus to become a kinsman for him to be our flesh and blood he had to come from heaven to earth he had to empty himself of all of his glory he had to be found in the likeness of a human being What did it take for him to not just be a kinsman, but to also be a redeemer? It didn't just cost him his money. It cost him his life, because our debt was not finite. It was infinite. But look at what he has done. Propitiation. He bore the cost himself. Do you you see what it means to be a Christian? Being a Christian is not to just say, I promise to try really hard. I'm going to try to live like Jesus. I'm going to try to come to church. I'm going to try to obey the Ten Commandments. No, what it means to become a Christian is to say, I am enslaved, I am in debt, and I have no hope unless you, Jesus, will be my kinsman redeemer. Do you know what Jesus will say to that? He will say, I can and I will. Even though it costs me everything, I will. But He's not going to just pardon you. He's not going to just cover your debt. You will be united with Him. He will take us into His own life. He will come into our lives and all that He is, and all that he has becomes ours. Jesus perfectly loved the Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor, that's us, as himself. He fulfilled the law. That's what Paul says. This absolutely fulfills the law. The God of the cross doesn't just want you to try harder. The God of the cross wants perfect obedience to the law. And in Jesus Christ, he gets that in your place. So you see, on the one hand, the God of the cross is more holy and more just and more demanding than the God of traditional religion that does everything on the basis of works. Eat this, don't eat that, wear this, don't wear that, do this, don't do that. It's all works. And in their minds, there's a tally that they keep, and hopefully in the end, the good outweighs the bad. God is much more demanding than that. He demands perfection. But on the other hand, He is far more loving than the secularized leftist view of God that says, I just believe in a God who loves and accepts everybody. If you ever talk to someone like that, you should ask them, What does it cost your God to love you? And they're going to say, well, nothing. It doesn't cost him anything. But the biblical God, because he's a holy God, he is an infinitely loving God because he's so holy, he couldn't just forgive. He had to send his son to suffer in our place, and he did. But that's the love of God, isn't it? That we not have to suffer in our own place, that Christ did so for us. And so do you believe in the blood, that in the temple that Christ was sacrificed for you and that it is sufficient to cover your sin? Do you believe in the need for the wrath of God to be appeased by the blood of Jesus Christ? then you have a God who is far more holy than the most moralistic, legalistic religion and far more loving than the most secularized, liberalized religion. Why? Because He's both the just and the justifier, and that will change your heart. Fear alone never changes a person's heart. If we just heard, you better be good or you're going to go to hell, that's not going to change our hearts. Fear cannot awaken love. Only love can awaken love. This idea of a God who loves everybody and accepts everybody no matter what, is that going to change your life? Does that electrify you? Does that love amaze you? Of course not. There's nothing special or unique about it. And friends, there are some of you here this morning who are confident that your sin is too great for you to ever be right with God. You assume yourself to be unworthy of salvation because of who you are and what you've done. And I'm here to tell you that you're right. You are unworthy of salvation because of who you are and because of what you have done. But... God's concern is not who you are and what you have done. It is who Christ is and what, and what Christ has done and whether or not you are trusting in Him that you might be counted as righteous on the day of judgment in the courtroom of heaven. You see, Paul's story can be your story. All that Paul has written can be true for you. You are who you are, you've done what you've done, because your great hope has been in yourself and all of your efforts to be a good person can only make you transgress the law more and more. But when your faith and when your hope and your trust are in Christ alone, He credits all that Christ did to your account and declares that you are not guilty. Faith in Christ alone. That is what saves us. Not being circumcised, not eating the right kinds of food, not teaching Sunday school or going to church or feeding the hungry or being pro-life or going on mission trips. All great and important things, but none of them are the gospel. The gospel is faith in Christ alone. The blood of Christ shed for us in the temple. Redemption given to us by being purchased from slavery justification in the courtroom of heaven that we might stand before Him, although guilty, based upon the work of Christ on our behalf, declared innocent. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show why Christ is exclusive. And so while the world may rail against the idea that salvation is found only in Christ alone, it is the greatest Most important news that we could ever proclaim, because in His divine forbearance, in His love, in His grace, in His mercy, God has passed over our former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. There is no greater love than that. Do you know Christ? Will you come to Him to receive the gift of all that He has done and all that He is in shedding His blood, in providing redemption, in giving you a righteous standing before the Father?